On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Yes's self-titled debut and time in a word. Hello and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we continue unexpectedly with the guest catalog circling all the way back to the beginning to cover the band's self-titled debut and their second album, Time in a Word. All right, uh, gentlemen, welcome to uh, this perhaps somewhat unexpected guest episode of Progressive Palaver. You know, there's there's a lot of things about running a podcast that, you know, you don't necessarily understand at first. And I made a tremendous mistake in the very beginning <laughs> <laughs> in 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 making the at the time arbitrary decision to literally just skip the first two yes albums and, and dive right into the yes album because I thought in my hubris that that's all that mattered. And the more that time has gone by and the more we've learned about how to run a podcast and the importance, really, in my, in my perception of starting at the beginning and, and seeing how the whole narrative unfolds for a particular band or artist, um, I, I've, been, I've been literally haunted by the fact that that we we just blew off these first two records mm. and and particularly you know as i started listening to them and and through all of the episodes that we've done on yes it's it's pretty well documented at this point that you know i have developed quite a fondness for early model bill bruford and then there was the whole sort of tony k awakening and and, and, you know, Paul, I've got to give you credit because you tried to drag us into these first two records when we started the Yes um, catalog. And, you know, you've obviously been a very big proponent of, of Tony Kay. But, man, he is a beast on these two albums. Just, Fucking yeah. right, Bubba. just yeah. a beast, man. Yeah. It's it's amazing. So, you know, as uh. as, as I sort of you know, went through my own little personal journey and then, you know, started listening to these. Um, I, I it, like I said, it became more and more appalling to me that I had, I had skipped over these. So I, I appreciate um, you two being willing to sort of circle all the way back and do one more yes episode that we weren't necessarily expecting um, because we thought we had, we had finished the catalog at heaven and earth. But um, I, I do think it's important to go back and and the OCD in me wants to make sure that we cover this properly. And so here we are tonight to go back and and right a wrong. And and Joe, thank you for extending me the, the courtesy of, of giving me credit for trying so hard early on because my pretty much my strategy for tonight is to just sit back and pat myself on the back while I listen to you guys talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's well earned, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is very interesting because, again, the the last episode that we did, we finished up on on Heaven and Earth, which is you know fairly recent, and now we have to go all the way back to the beginning and 
and, and to 1969 and 1970. And since we haven't been, relatively speaking, in 1969 and 1970 in quite some time, I was hoping, Ken, that you might be able to provide us, you know, some of the the, the prog context of what I imagine was a very, very verdant time in in music. You will need to contain my enthusiasm. This, okay. this is... <laughs> <laughs> and while listening to the material, I, I imagined I would have three or four pages open. I, I wanted the intersection of jazz with rock, with pop, uh, with, with, with prog. Oh, man. Uh, the kind editors on Wikipedia were kind enough to include the influences uh, that I needed. I'm going to go all the way back to maybe 62 through 67 wow. and, and just highlight what was happening. We had Eric Burden and the Animals forming in 63, Moody Blues forming in 64, Mothers of Invention forming in 64, The Birds forming in 64. Uh, Pink Floyd forming in 65. Floyd has to be uh, a bit of an influence here. Soft Machine, 66. Genesis, 67. Jethro Tull, 67. Traffic, 67. Vanilla Fudge, 67. Pretty amazing. The Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, May 1966. Very pivotal. The Mothers of Invention, Freak Out, June 1966. Keep in mind, the Beatles were still a band. They stopped touring before Yes did their thing, but they were still, you know, releasing Peppers. So Yes and the Beatles were contemporaries. Hmm. I think Jefferson Airplane, you know, particularly with Gray Slick, White Rabbit, is a huge influence. Whenever I hear marching in music and prog music throughout this, I, I imagine some of that... Uh, some of that hippie vibe coming through. Pretty amazing stuff. Captain Beefheart was just off the hook and made Prague sound normal. That uh, you know, in '67 he had safe as milk. The Rolling Stones, their Satanic Majesty's Request. That's '67. Uh, you know, even the Doors, they're around in this period. They get some credit. So you see where where I'm going with this. Miles Davis. Uh, Nefertiti is a good one. Miles in the Sky was 68. So I'm going to say that Peter Banks probably heard the guitarists in the jazz realm. I'm just going to pick one who everyone knows, and that's Wes Montgomery. And I think he died in 67 or 68, and he left behind a, a, a huge legacy and a lot of records for folks to get into. Pretty awesome stuff. By the time we get to 69, additional bands, let me see, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, The Nice, Caravan, Procol Harem. You get the idea. So finally, <laughs> finally, we get to... I'm sorry, Ken. I, I, can't, I can't hear Procol Harem without thinking about you dragging me, kicking and screaming into a whiter shade of pale back in high school. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like that one. Well, you know, I grew to actually, I, I, I fell deeply in love with that song. But I, I remember, 
I, I had stumbled upon the idea of making these these heavy metal mixtapes, and I called them Rubiginous Treatise. And I remember those. And and I had done like maybe the first one, one and a half, two, whatever. And I was on like the next volume and I had put some on and I gave it to you, Ken. And I said, Ken, put some good stuff on here because, you know, Ken, you had all the great stuff. And you come back with, you know, probably some things that I was expecting. And then you had Whiter Shade of Pale. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And you just kind of gave me this look like, you'll get it. <laughs> oh, man. And I totally did. So I just think that's funny. <laughs> okay. 69 is massive. Genesis, from Genesis to Re uh, Revelation, actually happened in March 69 prior to Yes, Yes, which would have been July 69. Uh, I do find that fascinating how they kind of tracked a little bit together in there. In between the two, the Moody Blues on the Threshold of a Dream. It's a fantastic, fantastic time. We're covering Time in a Word that takes us all the way into 70. Let's leave it at that, but just soak up the flower power, the jazz, the prog, everything that is in the background to yes. Yeah. I have to say this, Ken, Joe and I were just talking about Stephen Wilson albums over the last uh, week or so. I heard you were doing that. Of course, we didn't have you, so we were kind of doing it live on the fly, scrolling through the years. And I think the last one we did was 2015. There was like five minutes of dead air as I scrolled through every <laughs> month of 2015 looking for an album that not only I recognized, but that I actually you know, could say, oh, yeah, that's a really good album. <laughs> While you're talking, I'm scrolling through the year 1969, and I'm just like, holy shit. <laughs> I could listen to music for the next six months if I just started picking out all the albums that are fantastic. I mean, the things like Led Zeppelin. Actually, 1969, Led Zeppelin served us up two albums. Um, Led Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin II. Pink Floyd gave us two albums, Johnny Winter, The Who released Tommy, which I never before in my time span of music ever linked Tommy into the same realm time-wise of Yes's first album. Yeah. Right on. Like the 1969 is like this must have been a year of the dog. I'm going to see if it was cuz man, the music is exceptional. <laughs> I don't think 69 was the year of the dog. I believe I'm a dog and I'm 70. So You're right. I'm too. Yeah, we're I all forgot. dogs. You're right. Okay. So it was it was the precursor to the year of the dog. That's why. There it was go. so freaking it was, awesome. It was leading up to. So we had the, the dogs had all the good stuff to listen to. There it is. There it is. Yes was released in July 1969. Produced by Paul Clay and Yes. Released on the label Atlantic. The band lineup, one John Anderson. Um, the wikis credit him with lead vocals and incidental percussion. Peter Banks on guitars and backing vocals. Chris Squire on bass and backing vocals. Tony Kay slaying it on the organ and piano. And yeah. Bill, Bill Bruford on drums and vibraphone. Oh, yeah. Track listing, Beyond and Before, I See You, Yesterday and Today, Looking Around, Harold Land, 
every little thing and sweetness. Yes is the first studio album by the English rock band Yes, released on 25 July 1969 by Atlantic Records. After the band formed in mid-1968, they toured extensively across the United Kingdom with sets formed of original material and rearranged cover versions. They signed with Atlantic in early 1969 and entered AdVision and Trident Studios in London to record their first album. Yes includes covers of Every Little Thing by The Beatles and I See You by The Birds. Yes received some positive reviews from music critics in the United Kingdom and United States, but it was not a commercial success and failed to enter the album chart. Two singles from the album were released, Sweetness and Looking Around. The album was remastered in 1994 and 2003, the latter containing several previously unreleased tracks, including a rendition of Something's Coming from West Side Story. Hmm. Time and a Word was released in July 1970. These were actually released almost exactly a year apart from each other. Also on the uh, label Atlantic, produced by Tony Colton, and we'll get to him in a little later on. Same band lineup, John Anderson, Peter Banks, Chris Squire, Tony Banks, and Bill Bruford. Um, additionally credited on the wikis are David Foster, um, vocals on Sweet Dreams, and acoustic guitar on Time and a Word, which we'll get to that. I'm not sure I would take credit for that. Oh, Tony Cox is credited with orchestration and conductor, and the Royal College of Music students are credited with brass and strings. Track listing is no opportunity necessary, no experience needed. Then, Every Days, Sweet Dreams, The Prophet, Clear Days, um, Astral Traveler, and Time and a Word. Time and a Word is the second studio album by the English rock band Yes, released in July 1970 by Atlantic Records. It was put together several months after the re release of their debut album, Yes, during which the group continued to tour heavily and recorded Time and a Word during gaps between shows. Yes continued to follow their early musical direction of performing original material and cover versions of songs by pop, jazz, and folk artists. A small orchestra of brass and string session musicians was used on most of the album's songs. Guitarist Peter Banks did not support the idea of adding an orchestra to the album, resulting in increased tensions between himself and the rest of the group. During their UK tour in April 1970 and before the album's release, Banks was fired from Yes and was replaced by Steve Howe. The UK album cover was considered inappropriate for the American market, so a new photograph of the band was used, putting Howe on the cover of an album on which he did not appear. Time and a Word became the group's first release to enter the UK album's chart with a peak at number 45, but did not chart in the United States. The album received mixed reviews from critics. In 2003, the album was remastered with several previously unreleased tracks. All right. It's somewhat hard for me to believe that the cover of Time and a Word was considered inappropriate for the American audience. I mean, wow. Have you looked at it? Well, I, I mean, just considering the state of music that we're currently living in in America, it just seems like, I mean. It's got I, a naked, I'm, it's got a naked I'm, lady on it. 
I know. So there, what? So we're okay with naked asses of there, men, but there, not okay with naked women? Or? There are boobies. You can't have boobies. <laughs> boobies are bad. Naked asses of men, totally okay. Boobies, bad. Okay. All right. I guess I guess that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> I can't. I just can't let that go. So, <laughs> Blind Faith released Blind Faith. Isn't there a picture of a woman's boob on on that album? There are boobies on that album. Yes. So that's okay for the American audience. What happened? Why did we have to? <laughs> I don't take the know. boobies off of the Yes album. I don't know. I, I really hmm. don't know. Okay. What I find funny is I recently purchased these two albums and. So the, the booklet that I have has the U.S. on the ah. version on the cover, but the U.K. version is on the inside. And ah. as, I, as I bought it, it was folded over like this, and this was put into the jewel case, so it looked like it had the U.K. cover. Very, very wow. slick. Clever. Yes. Whoever, whoever sold this to McKay was very clever indeed. Let's just talk about these these two albums. These were probably the last Yes albums that I got around to listening to. I want to say I owned them for several years before even listening to them. I was exposed to the album Yesterdays, which contains mm. some of the tracks from here, but I I didn't know really anything about it. Um, there are some tracks that, that showed up on some of the compilations that I bought in the late 90s, probably. But my first exposure to any of this probably would have been when John did Time and a Word to open the ABWH shows. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, so basically these, you know, I, I knew the the songs on the, the compilations, and, and that's partially what led me initially to just dismiss these albums. Because um, it was like, you know, oh, it's just, it's the first couple albums, and, you know, it's not really Yes, and, you know, whatever. But, you know, when you go back and listen to it, honestly, while it it's not necessarily, you know, what Yes would become... It, it really is, when you think about a, a first release, and, and we'll talk about this when we get to Genesis, certainly, it, it's it's actually not terribly far. You know, there were a lot of elements of, of Yes music that were present literally from the inception, which is pretty impressive, I think. Yeah, particularly Chris's bass sound. Oh, my God. Well, and, I mean, you get that, in the first seconds of the first album, <laughs> right? It's just and like, I think hey, it's the same damn Rickenbacker. Yeah, that first record, Beyond and, and Before, just comes out of the gate right at you, and you're like, "Holy shit, this is awesome!" Mm. I find that to be, you know, one of the worthwhile things about this. The other thing that sort of drove me here. Paul, you and I have made mention of the, I guess it's the Yes Years documentary, you know, where mm. they, they have all the, the interviews. Mm. And, and there's that, you know, that famous interview that I can't forget. Bill Bruford has a couple of, of really great oh, yeah. quotes from sort of the beginning where he talks mm. about the fact that he was going to play jazz drums sitting behind them and they were going to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. And, you know, you know yeah. no one no one really cared about each other. 
the the sort of of tone wars between him and Chris to uh, to cut through the mix and the whole cowboy crazy thing. Those are the, those are the three main parts that I remember. Now again, at the time, I had virtually no exposure to these two albums, and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Those three points really are aimed at these two albums. Mm. I agree. Every time I I listen to beyond and before all i can all i can hear in my head is this was going to be a vocal band and i was going to play jazz drums right because that's that's pretty much what's going on in that song just everyone's rocking out bill's just kind of jazzing out jazz, you know heavy jazz and the vocals are terrific and 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 the the jazz drumming is terrific yeah. i i love it yep and and i i don't until I sort of had that epiphany about Bill Bruford, I don't know that I would have appreciated it. But having, you know, had my, my Bill Bruford moment and going back and listening to this, Bill Bruford is very, very prevalent in the mix of these two albums. And mm. quite frankly, I like it a lot. Yeah. Listen, I think that if you compare this to what's the first Genesis from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, sir. You compare these two albums, they're released within months of one another, I believe. Yes. Oh my gosh, does this sound so much better than the Genesis album? So much better. Wow. I mean, th th we'll get to that in the Genesis episodes, but, you know, the band wasn't really... It, Genesis, the band, wasn't so much integrated with what their producer did on that album. Um, whereas I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure John Anderson in the least, probably all of them were very connected to what happened. I don't know orchestra. that. I don't understand why that it makes it okay for the record to sound like shit, but, um, <laughs> but you're right. You're right. Like they, you know, I, I don't think they were quite as seasoned at that point in time with each other and with what they were doing for sure. You know, and, and, and to be fair, like even yellow submarine, right. I, I don't think, you know, that's your typical, Beatles record that has, you know, funky, the funky stereo shit going on. Basically, you know, everything panned to one side or another. I, I really feel like sound wise, this is a pretty good, you know, there's, there's, there's maybe there's two camps in this time frame. Maybe I'm just talking out my ass, but the, the, for 1969, there's a lot going on here in the mix, and it sounds really good, similar to you know when I think about Tommy, which is probably why I never thought Tommy was in this. I thought Tommy came later than this, but um, yeah, I'll, I mean, I guess my point is just that I think it sounds, you know, for the time, I think it sounds really good. If you look at the wikis, and there was some consternation, sort of the the beginning of the yes turmoil, obviously with time and a word. And a lot of that seems to revolve around the, the choice of Tony Colton to produce that. And I think, you know, if you compare these two albums, I think Yes is produced a heck of a lot better than than Time and a Word. And, you know, presumably that would be because, you know, they get signed to Atlantic. And, and let's talk about that for a second. All right. These guys get themselves together in 1968 and you know within a year they're signed to Atlantic you know a major freaking record label and they're in the studio recording an album how, how the hell does that happen 
Well, really? I want to call their, their their past experience. They they had recorded with uh, at least uh, Tony. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Peter Banks had uh, re- re- recorded previously uh, in, in in many bands, and I think his sound just kind of kicks ass compared to what was going on at the time. Mm. I, I think his his tone is is seasoned. You know, whether it's him or the producer, I want to say it, it's way better than like Steve Hackett and a lot of the things that were going on at the time. Mm. Well, so I guess I'm agreeing with you guys. There, do, there are these aspects that keep popping up. Now, do we know, so keep in mind though, and we keep drawing this Genesis comparison because first albums, they came out, you know, within a couple months of each other. There's obviously the connection with the string section between from Genesis to revelation and time and a word and everything else. But the thing I think that maybe is important in this, and again, we'll get to this in the Genesis conversation, is Genesis were 17 years old. They were still basically in school at that point. Yeah. Thank Where, you. Whereas, yeah. yes, we're, you know, out and being professional musicians for at least, you know, a number of years at this point, right? Five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally fair. Anderson's like mid-20s by this point. Totally fair. Genesis also, they weren't really... F- figuring out what they were doing they were just kind of recording songs I, f- I feel like in their early early records right it's not like they had yep. some sort of proggy sort of aspirations right um right yeah I mean, yeah and peter was all into motown he didn't know what he was creating yeah. there it just kind of happened well and and so ken before we we got on air i was asking you about peter bank specifically because you know, and, and again, Bill Bruford is on record as saying, I wanted to play jazz drums. They were going to be a vocal group, whatever. And, you know, we all know that Chris Squire is, you know, just a, a force of nature from the get-go. But but Peter Banks, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you almost, you overlook him because, you know, Steve Howe has become so synonymous with, with Yes and, and all of the things that he did. and. There are a lot of points in these two albums where Peter Banks, the guitarist, kind of just disappears. He's buried under Tony Kay, slaying it left and right. Chris <laughs> Squire is, is running over everybody. But there are those times when he, you know, Peter Banks pops up. And, you know, for me, coming where I am and not knowing shit from Shinola, I can't decide if he's into rock music or jazz music because he kind of vacillates between the two of them. Yeah, I want to say Peter Banks is ideal. He's had a great balance of rock and, and, and jazz. He, he's got a great sound. In some aspects, some limited aspects, I like him much better than Steve Howe. He's like a re- reliable guitarist. He's there. He's doing his thing. He can spruce it up. Man, it, it it makes me feel bad for you know how things turned out because he didn't get along with the band after all was said and done. Damn, I'm appreciating him now on these yeah, recordings. Yeah, I I think one of the coolest things, classiest things that happened at the Hall of Fame induction was when Steve Howe gave a shout out to Peter Banks. I yeah. thought that was incredibly awesome. I agree with you, Ken. He there are moments here that are just. Terrific. And I remember not having an album cover of Time in a Word, listening to some of the songs, thinking, oh, yeah, it sounds like a, you know, sort of a harder edge Steve Howe. Like, never even early on, really even taking note that it wasn't Steve Howe. 
in um, things like uh, Sweet Dreams and Astral Traveler, like just very, very cool. What what I do find interesting though is on these two albums, he he Peter Banks gets zero writing credits. Yeah. Um, for any of the songs, so mm. to be such a he's such an you know important part to so many of these uh, songs and so and some of these melodies, and yet you know he's not credited with songwriting at all. Any other sort of general thoughts about these records then before we we get into them? You know, you kind of mentioned, Joe, that, you know, when you listen to these, you can hear the yes, like you can hear the, the, the some of their signature things right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. While you can definitely feel the seeds of what's to come germinating, I don't think that anything on these two albums, yes, and time in a word, nothing hailed any kind of indication of what was about to happen with the Yes album. And I and I find that remarkable. I I disagree. I think well, there is okay. there is one small moment it points to it, but but maybe you're right in the fact that it it has no indication of the sheer magnitude of of the leap that was going to happen. And that's interesting because again, I've been I've been sort of gushing um, I think here in the, the first part of this episode, and certainly as I've been been playing through these these albums, you know, I, I find myself in this sort of euphoria bouncing back between Chris, Bill, and Tony, just kind of taking turns kicking ass. While that's great, and and I find a, a lot to enjoy here, none of this maybe comes together in the holistic way that you know yes has become known for in terms of songwriting and and you know elevating the art form so to speak right especially now that we have gone through the entire catalog it is a lot of fun to just put put these in and just hear these guys young and raw and sort of unfettered by anything right they're just they're just going balls out i would say we acknowledge that they started as a cover band. They covered a lot of Beatles mm-hmm. songs. Um, the you know the second track on the first album is a bird song, and they uh, cover every little thing Beatles song. And then on time and a word, uh, we've got covers from Richie Havens and Stephen Stills. And and they they continued that obviously with probably their most famous cover that came what was it 1973 with. Uh, America. With America, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And and the Richie Havens cover, no opportunity necessary, no experience needed. Not only the exact song that Bill Bruford quoted the Cowboy Crazy yep. at the but quite possibly a candidate for the best song on these on these two. Records now, you know, time in a world is pretty, pretty timeless, and I love sweet dreams. That track is everything. It's great, awesome. Yes, you know, you you buy this new record. I don't know how you would have heard about it, so you buy it and you bring it home and you put it on right out of the gate. You know, Chris comes in and then Bill comes in really after that, and it it just you know could could you 
could you write a better opening? I mean, talk about tracking an album. I mean, this mm -hmm. was this is a fantastic way to get people's attention, I think. It's a Mabel Greer's Toy Shop song, to be precise. So this Clive Bailey was in Mabel Greer's Toy Shop with Chris then? Uh, yes, yes. And he had the pleasure of reviving Mabel Greer's Toy Shop in, uh, in 2015, I think, with the help of uh, uh, our friend Billy. So. Of course. That's right. Billy, Billy Sherwood, the, the, the man who will not rest. <laughs> no, he will not. He will not. You know, and, and I do think in addition to the bombastic opening um, that, you know, you sort of get a taste of, of the, the vocal harmonies here. It really does sort of set the stage, I think, for Yes as, as a group going forward. The Bruford Squire onslaught continues with I See You. Um, and, and this is sort of our introduction to Peter Banks' jazz guitarist as well. <laughs> so you've got a lot of sort of dynamics in this song alone. I think in the first three or four tracks of this record, Yes really expose you to their breadth of ability. Beyond and Before is a five-minute song. I See You is 6.54. So while it's not, you know, a 20-minute sidelong opus, these guys are exploring longer forms than maybe were the norm at that time. Even Sgt. Pepper's, it's got a lot of different tracks on it, but I don't know any of them is, is you know, substantially long. So there are hints as to what's going to come here. You know, nothing on this album really like arrests me, right? And grabs me and makes me just want to be like, oh gosh, I can't wait to get back to the car and, and continue listening. But whenever I listen to this, you know, like the vocals, particularly in this track, they're, you know, maybe if anything, this is what you hear in, in the Yes album, right? And in, in like songs like Yours is No Disgrace, where like the whole verse is just everybody singing. Yeah. We end up hearing so much of that later on in, in, in so many different great examples throughout their catalog. And they are just busting it out here. I mean, the, the harmonies are perfect. And they can't really be that easy to do in 1969. It's not like they were spending a lot of time overdubbing and you know doing all of that. So the performances <laughs> are really, really spot on, I think. Oh, yeah. I would say that Beyond and Before gives me a bit of that marching slash dancing flower power feel. Kind of like we're partying, but we're simultaneously marching on Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that Jefferson airplane vibe coming through mm. here. You know, I wish I knew more about Jefferson airplane, but I don't. So I'm going to have to take your, uh, your word on that one, Ken. I was sort of amused. Uh, it, this was a very late pickup. I was, I was driving home today and I was listening to these two albums and I was, I was kind of jamming out on the um, sort of the, the middle section of I See You, where, you know, Peter has a jazz solo, then there's sort of this bombastic section, and then he goes into more of a rock solo, and I'm like, yeah, this is really great. And then after that, when they come, when they come back in, and, and it was just one of those things where all of a sudden the inanity of John's lyrics kind of hit me in the face when he sings, at your door, second floor, first world war. 
<laughs> He's collecting steam. He, 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 he. People have no idea what he's capable of at this point. <laughs> Much more where that came from. So what's what's really funny about that, and and I don't know what what the potential relationship there. You know, after I got done sort of laughing at myself, I did have to sort of give him a little bit of credit for moving from the the second to the first in the, in the first word of those two lines. So, you know, you you could almost argue that there's some sort of literary construction there, but the, or rhyme at the end of this and the, the cadence of the delivery. Now it reminds me very forcibly of a song from Monty Python's flying circus about uh, Dennis Moore, a guy who steals flowers from rich people. He's like supposed to be a Robin Hood type thing, but he's stupid and steals flowers instead of uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if that, if that connection is accidental, knowing Monty Python, it may very well not be, I don't know, but hmm. I, I heard, I heard these three lines today and I just, I was amused beyond all belief. That's fantastic that you mentioned Monty Python because their first episodes appeared on the BBC in 1969. You know, it's possible you never would have had Yes's Yes release or Genesis uh, from Genesis to Revelation unless you had Monty Python. They could all be linked. There seems to be some sort of creative convergence happening in in the UK in 1969. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But my understanding at the same time was, you know, not all was was well in the UK at that time either. It may have been a little bit before or after. I, I'm not really that that up on my my UK history, but but I, I have in my head, um, you know, the fact that there were time periods here where there were some significant, you know, sort of social issues at work. So. Um, the fact that all of this was sort of percolating around that is is impressive. Well, they didn't get sucked into Vietnam. I know, you know, the U.S. and Australia and whatever, right. they had their coalition. And then North Vietnam and China and Russia, their coalition. And the Brits weren't, but politically they they got all the same influences as the U.S. Yeah. That takes us into yesterday and today, and my note here is this is our first experience with what I call John's true voice, this signature sound that John has. Yeah, because there's sometimes on this album where I feel like he's singing too low. Well, and time and a word, too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. His voice is beautiful. Not one of my favorites. I'm just... Yeah, I, I, I don't know that it's mine either. I don't really have a whole lot to say other than that. The seeds are sowing. They they are sowing, which takes us to looking around. Hi, Tony K. Exactly, right? <laughs> We've made some light on the palaver, and other people have as well, you know, about Tony K's fascination or fixation with the Hammond organ and and his resistance in in adopting other keyboards and things like that. But 
there's an aggressiveness to the way that Tony's organ sounds on these two albums that in a lot of ways almost supersedes a distorted guitar, right? Mm. It, it just it just gets right up in your face and it's kind of growly and I love it. Yeah, it's that real classic sound and, and he uh, conveys it pretty well. Although I think we should probably refrain from calling it Tony's organ. <laughs> <laughs> this song is a good case for Tony K not experimenting with other keyboards and just sticking sticking to it. Yeah, pretty righteous tone and pretty righteous playing. So that gets us to Harold Land, which quite frankly doesn't do a whole lot for me. I think the back half is a little bit better, but yeah, whatever. I'd say it's well executed, well produced, and it's got some melody. It gives me a little bit of juice. It gives me a little bit of energy. Yeah, and there's some great uh, Tony K moments at the end. But I would say overall, it's more of the same here at this point, yeah. right? Okay, we're ready. We're ready for the next album. Right. <laughs> Does that mean we're blowing through every little thing in sweetness? It's good. It does its thing. It's good. I love Survival. I absolutely love Survival. Mm. I, I, I could loop that and just keep listening to it over and over. I don't know what it's about. I know it's an Anderson tune. It just puts me in that space. And Ken, I, I agree with you. My note here is what a great way to finish an album. So again, this this album starts really strong and I think it ends really strong. The intro is killer. And, you know, as the band comes in, it just kind of ramps it up. And and Paul, I think Survival is the one song on these two albums that points towards the Yes album. Indeed. I think I got into this song because of that box set that came out around the Union tour. Uh-huh. Yeah, is that Yes Years? That's yeah, correct. Yes Years. This is one of those songs where... I was like shocked when I found out it was Peter Banks. I was like, no way. I can't believe <laughs> that's not just like a younger Steve Howe. Yeah. And maybe that's that's part of what I'm hearing here. Ken, assuming you're still with us, survival is your absolute favorite in this period. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know what it's about, but it just feels great. I could listen to it over and over again. That finishes out the the first record. You know, not not bad for a debut. In uh, 1969, which leads us right into Time and a Word. And again, talk about how to start an album. Now, Paul, you already touched on this. No opportunity necessary, no experience needed. I, I guess maybe before we get into Time and a Word, we have to address the strings thing, right? And, and again, there are certain parallels between this album and From Genesis to Revelation. I think, though, my personal opinion is the the integration of the strings on this record is much more deftly accomplished than from Genesis to Revelation, where it seems like they recorded something and the producer came in and threw a bunch of crap on top of it that I, I, there didn't seem to be any sort of of connection between them at all. Whereas I think here they picked and chose where they were going to utilize the strings. And it's it seemed to be, you know, a very conscious sort of effort as to where it would enhance and, and where it wouldn't. That's how I sort of see this. You know, every time I hear the album version of 
of uh, no opportunity. I always think of, you know, yes years probably where those they have those. And I don't know what that famous uh, place was where they would all play. I don't know if it was the um, I don't know what it was, but the, all the bands would play and they would have these psychedelic backgrounds flying through and they would make videos of mm -hmm. it. But I'm pretty sure it was like a live uh, show. Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops. Maybe maybe that's what it is. I think in that video is, you know, that is 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 Tony K rocking out on the um the organ. And every time I hear the recording and I hear the strings, I'm like, oh damn, I wish I was just hearing the 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 organ. But you know, to your point, Joe, I think that's it, right? I think they had these songs, they wrote them, they figured out the and then they said, okay, let's bring in an orchestra and figure out like where to put them. And I think I mentioned in the very, very early episodes when we first started talking about, yes, that when, you know, Peter Banks ends up leaving the band because he doesn't really like that aspect of things. And then, of course, ironically, they don't work with an orchestra until, you know, magnification, right? But when Steve Howe shows up, he starts doing a lot more of that orchestrated stuff by changing instruments and with Rick Wakeman coming in and adding some new textures of sounds. It almost makes the need for an orchestra unnecessary, right? But I, I think you're right on, Joe. I think there it was deliberate. It was very planned. By and large, it works tremendously well. And so looking at this, at the writing credits on this, right, you've got the, the two covers, no opportunity necessary and every days and everything else is John Anderson with help on a couple of different tracks. Yeah. It's another step towards, you know, what would ultimately become. Yes. Now, again, if you look at these two, does it, does it tell you what you're going to get the next album? No, I don't think it really does. Yeah. Um, but, but clearly they were, they were making, progress and, and strides and everything else this song this opening track you know you get those <laughs> those great shots of a like bill bruford singing along with the lyrics you know during the videos of the of the song i mean it just they look like they're having fun the sound is great john anderson is just kind of like in then john anderson in the video he's just kind of like standing there shaking his head very slightly while he's singing the you know, it just looks like they're not quite taking themselves too seriously yet, but it's great. I really do think that the music on this and their presentation of the music on this album is is much better than, than the first album. They're definitely growing and they're definitely moving into a new area. This album saw the, the kerfluffle over the producer. This album did see the introduction of one Eddie Offord into the Yes family. Yes. Ooh. Well, that's right. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of important. I find then to be, you know, again, it's another one of those examples where I'm fixated on, on Kay Bruford and Squire just, you know, unleashed, if you will. But so every days I'm, I'm fascinated. So every days can you love every days, right? I love it. I love it. I like it. I don't know that I love it. So, so maybe you can tell us what you love about it so much, Ken. I don't know. I, I seem to like everything Stephen Stills has ever done. So this is really 
a cover of um, something Stephen Stills wrote for Buffalo Springfield. And it, it's um, it's a lot of D minor, dude. <laughs> it's, it's the same note. It's like, and it like it takes a long time to pick up. It's like that one place where uh, Peter Banks, you know, he hits that like sustained grungy note, and you think, oh yeah, it's gonna feed back, and they're gonna go, and it's just a teaser. And then he like brings it down and the second verse starts up and then it's still the jazzy stuff and you're like waiting for it. And by the time it comes, I'm just like in heaven. It's got patience, you know, they say be comfortable with uh, stillness or uh, chill out, relax, chillax. It puts me in a good space, this tune. That's cool. I love it. I find Sweet Dreams to be one of the highlights of this record. And as we were talking earlier, apparently so did one Trevor Raven. Yeah. Um, he apparently was fixated on this. I find I, I enjoy the dynamics of this song. So again, if you're looking towards that that sort of step towards what they would become, I think the, the sort of textural changes in this song is one of those things that speak to it. And I think this is maybe a shining example at this point of, of John and Chris singing together. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just, oh, yeah. it's absolutely beautiful. And I think this is maybe one of Peter Banks's strongest songs as well. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, of good stuff going on here. And I might take back what I said about, you know, you know, having no indication of something as brilliant as the Yes album to follow these, because you're right, Joe, when you think about, you know, the vocal passages here with, Squire and with John Anderson, it really is reminiscent of some of the great things that happened on the Yes album and then even even beyond that. So this song is one of my favorites of the two, might be the highlight. I was just blown away that they did this at the show this summer Yeah, that we went to. That bass line is just... If you missed all the great shit that's going on in the bass guitar in these two albums, you, you know, you can't avoid it here. It's it's just it's the highlight of of the album, you know, with a close, you know, time in a world astral, astral traveler then and and the opening track, yeah. you know, kind of right on its heels. But this one is is the one that I constantly go back to. What do you guys think of the prophet? I've struggled over the last week or two with this song, trying to figure out how I feel about it. I don't know if it would be fair to make this comparison. It it certainly isn't for me mm -hmm. because I love this piece of music that I'm going to compare it to. But I think for many others, it might be somewhat of Yes's version of the Fountain of Lemneth. Oh, wow. Okay. It's just not that great. It's just a, it's kind of a longer track that to me never really kind of makes makes it. That maybe is a very, very interesting parallel there because clearly this is an attempt at some sort of a storytelling. I find it to be kind of uneven. It's got that sort of creepy intro, which is great, but I don't know that it ever really delivers on that. I found it interesting. There was There's a, a small part sort of near the end that reminded me of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Hmm. So, you know, because obviously these guys were, everyone was listening to the Beatles. So that makes a perfect, you know, sense to me. I don't know that 
the profit really does a lot for me and i feel pretty much the same way about clear days yeah it's hard too because you know you can't escape no matter how well i can't escape no matter how much i i want to go back and listen to these things with a purely open mind and let it encompass all of me I can't help but the fact that I discovered yes so much later and I've everything has been kind of like going backwards similar I talked about this a little bit with Stephen Wilson like and there's just this sort of terrible impatience that I have to you know try to allow myself to be over overcome by the prophet and take the time that's really necessary to to dig in just to see if I like it yeah it's just it's I'm a little bit lazy to say, yeah, you know what? I'll just stick with the five tracks that I really like off this album, and and um, I don't think that anyone's going to hold it against me. And I think it's easy to do that if you're if you haven't jumped into yes early on. I mean, we almost didn't even cover these albums, right? So yeah, you know, and and it's I, I'm I'm tending to agree with you on on that because a, a couple of minutes ago I was going to suggest. You know, what if we did a salvage.com operation here? I think between these two albums, if you sort of take the highlights and cut out the rest, you could have one like super duper strong album. But that being said, at the same time, and again, you know, based on my experience here and the fact that I felt it was important we go back and, and listen to these, I have not had any problem putting these two discs in and listening to them in their entirety multiple times over the last few weeks. I've I've had no trouble at all doing that, so yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good point. I don't, I I rarely think. Yeah, today I'm going to listen to Time for a Word. I really uh, Time and a Word. I really want to hear Clear Days. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but you know, overall, this album is fantastic. On a Sunday morning when I'm cooking breakfast and just kind of getting shit together. Like, I just love putting this album on and listening to the whole thing front to back. A, a lot of your preparation for the palaver seems to revolve around cooking Sunday breakfast. It, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very special time for me. It's a lot of, <laughs> lot of quiet me time that I can uh, you know, do a couple things that I love at the same time. There are some disconcerting transitions. Um, the the uh, influences vary quite a bit. You know, from the rock to the flower power to the prog. And sometimes I get lost in here and sometimes I get overwhelmed. Um, you said you had no problem streaming them back to back. But, yeah. you know, depending on what I'm doing, it can be a little overwhelming. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I also, I asked the question of myself if Clean Days was some sort of a, a failed Beatles ripoff. It's only two minutes long. It's not like it's a, a huge commitment of your time to uh, to listen to it. At two minutes and ten seconds, is it shorter than White Car? Oh, White Car wins by a mile. White Car's only minute 21. Oh, right. Okay. That makes <laughs> sense. Interestingly, the Clear Days remastered lost four seconds. So I guess that the remastering engineer was a little quicker on the fade yeah <laughs> i can't believe the only writing credit on astral traveler is anderson because it's such a rocker it's got so much going on there yeah so again the the way they tracked these these albums are just fantastic astral traveler 
it's it's a classic. There's just so much about it, and it's it's a it's a perfect sort of marrying of yeah. And, and I've said this time and time again. Tony Kay's all over the place. Um, Chris Squire's doing his thing. Bill Bruford, just oh, I love I love what he plays on this song. I absolutely one hundred percent love everything that he's doing here. Um, you know, and the whole idea of having, um, you know, the vocals going through the, uh, whatever the cabinet's called, um, to get that. Sort of, yeah. You know, it's the Leslie. It's, yeah. Yep. Leslie. Yeah. That's it. The Leslie cabinet. It's just, yeah. It, it, wow. <laughs> I don't even have words anymore. Yeah. I mean, they could have ended on this, but the fact that they didn't, you know, that it's the, it's the penultimate song I think is even more genius. <laughs> in the late 80s early 90s when john had his thing of having sort of the, the the john anderson signature song at the end of the album he did it with holy lamb and hmm. i think this is maybe the first manifestation of that and maybe it's just because again my first experience with this was was john singing it sort of by himself at the abwh shows but this seems hmm. like such an expression of mm -hmm. john What's important to John and, and, and everything else. And maybe maybe I'm I'm projecting too much onto it, but I, I do love it. Um I need to go back and listen because again, my experience with this was mainly through the, the box sets, right? That came yeah. out in, in the late uh the late nineties or whatever the case may be. And when I was listening to the Yes Music podcast, I remember Mark specifically talking about the acoustic guitar here and how it sounds just terribly out of, of tune or, or atonal even. I never recalled that when I heard that episode. Hmm. But when, when I started listening for this, I obviously have, you know, the actual CDs that appear to be the Atlantic remasters and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the the acoustic guitar that that opens this song is just it's not good i don't know what it is and i'm amazed that on the remaster they let it sit in there but i i want to go back and listen to the versions that are on the the box sets that i had and see if maybe it wasn't as prevalent there and that's why i'd never noticed it i mean it doesn't sound great but i don't know that i ever thought it sounded terrible wow I mean, even just like, you know, I snuck a little bit in my earhead, my earphones right now and thinking, yeah, 1970. It does give some of the character to, to the song, I think, especially with that crazy. I'm not I've never been a big fan of the the electric guitar with the tremolo sort of wobbly tone. Never been a fan yeah, of that. Like one of the one of the things I like the least about Marillion is when Rothery really really layers that on thick yeah for some reason i've just never really been a big fan of that and it's all over this song i actually think peter banks is genius in this song with the melodies that he plays along with um during the verse and everything um, what about that um well and, and, and uh, don't get me wrong it's not it's not everything right it it's yeah. it's just that it, when you got that single sort of low in the mix yeah. acoustic guitar at the beginning it just sounds off it's not right. What were you going to say, Ken? Oh, there are some iconic songs. I'm thinking Jimmy Page had some, and I'm thinking Johnny Marr. 
playing in the Smiths. How soon is now? The really oh. vibrating, oscillating tone. I think there is somewhat of the spontaneity of of this song that maybe is is uh, preserved by keeping the less than than perfect guitar track in there and and the fresh doesn't bother me. I really do think that there is a lot to recommend these two albums. I think there is an awful lot to enjoy here. And like I said, if if nothing else, it it really sort of explains some of those famous quotes that I'd heard about, you know, the the beginning of Yes, that it, it those were really focused towards these albums and maybe less so you know, the world did not start at the Yes album. It, yeah, these first two records are they're they're easy to overlook. They're easy to just kind of skim through, but they are certainly instrumental to understanding this band and enjoying them fully. I think wonderful talent, just wonderful premonition of things to come. And uh, thank you. They, I always say thank you for this exercise of the palaver. Um, otherwise, I never would have really gotten to know. Peter Banks, and I just love his tones. This will, for the time being, certainly finish out our our Yes catalog. And I personally feel like a great weight has been lifted off of me. (laughs) 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 Having having gone back and and sort of completed the cycle. So I, I, as always, appreciate you gentlemen coming along for the ride and and helping out and providing your, your insights into into these records always a pleasure yeah great stuff we hope you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver we had a great time going back and and sort of putting the finishing touches on the yes catalog as always we look forward to your thoughts your comments your feedback your questions you can reach us on facebook instagram and Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You are, as always, welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on whatever the current Apple and Google services are called, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.